All right, hello everyone. My name is Philip Palumbo. I'm the host of the Palumbo Podcast, where we interview founders of businesses to learn what, how they climb the ladder. Today we have with us Chad Price, who has 12 plus years as a seasoned entrepreneur in multiple businesses. We're looking forward to getting some insights and perspectives on what founders need to know. So Chad, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on. All right. So, so Chad, you know, big thing about being a founder of a business, as I am and, and you are as well, is is understanding a business and and the certain level of fortitude that it takes. So, tell us from your experience working with other founders, founder yourself, you know, what it takes to become a founder. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a uh, you come from, you know, especially when you're talking about entrepreneurship, you can come from your experiences and kind of what it takes can come from a various. Uh, let's say sources, if you will. Um, you know, for me, my, my kind of background in sports and athletics, it really gave me a foundation for discipline and training and, you know, getting better on a day-to-day -day basis, having practice and reviewing practice and trying to create processes that equal improvement, you know, it's kind of comes natural to an athlete. Um, but I also think, you know, it, it, it's other entrepreneurs that might be, don't come from an athletic background and, you can take other experiences, whether that's your educational experiences or um, cultural or, you know, even your your parents, you know, may have certain uh, philosophies that they have in, in impaired on you. And so what I try to teach people is how do you utilize your experiences in the best way for your entrepreneurship career? And it's really just looking at how you can become and utilize uh everything that's happened to you thus far as an experience versus, you know, being kind of a, a victim mindset. You know, I think an entrepreneur is a person that sees the opportunities more than they see, uh, you know, the potential risk of the world, if you will. Right. Being a founder and entrepreneur, it's interesting. It is a certain level. It's a certain mindset. I think if you're a negative person naturally, I think it would be difficult to be a founder mm -hmm. versus someone who has more of a, a positive personality. What are, you, what are your thoughts as it relates to that? For sure. And I mean, I'm usually the person that feels like we can do anything, right? Like if you tell me we got to get to the moon, I'm like, okay, when do we start? Right. Um, but I, you know, I do realize that kind of, you have to be realistic with your optimism as well. So I think there's a, there's a balance of having a, a realistic assessment of the world. And I think the entrepreneurs that, that do really well are the people that can find and kind of pull the reality towards their vision, towards their dream. And it, that does take a sense of optimism to think that you can steer the world or you can create a brand from scratch and people, you know, will love it and, and want to spend their money on it. So, you know, I think it's a good thing to have that. And a lot of times I try to have maybe a more pessimistic person in my circle, in my network that I can bounce my ideas off just to make sure I'm calibrating myself correctly. <laughs> It's always good. So I said I have my negative crew that I go to go to with things. And just like you said, just make sure it is a balanced approach to everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're important to have around. So you so you play you played sports. What do you play? What type of sport did you play? What was your main sport? I played everything, uh, yeah, literally everything under the sun. But um I went to college and played uh at Rice University. I played football there. So where? Uh, where? at right at Rice University in Houston. Oh great, yeah, yeah. And you played football. Yeah. Football, yeah, strong oh. safety. All right. Good for you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. What do you think about, what do you think about the Super Bowl? Uh, I mean, I'm excited about it. You know, I feel like football is finally getting good again since COVID. It was a, a couple of years. I, did, I wasn't really feeling it so much, but, um, you know, I think things are coming back to normal. So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the, 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 the Super Bowl. And I think this whole kind of season has been pretty good this year. So who are you betting on to win the Super Bowl? Uh, I I don't really have a bet, to be honest. You know, I, I'm one of those people that doesn't really have a team. You know, I like whoever's trying the hardest. And I feel like, right. you know, it's it's such a um, 
sports gives you that journey or that kind of uh, new story every year. And so I, I really love that aspect of sports is, you know, teams start from nothing and kind of build themselves up and there's only one champion. So I, I really just like watching the journey. Yeah. Love it. Love it. It, it overlates to business. I mean, there's exact parallels with everything. Yeah. So what inspired you to become an entrepreneur? Uh, I mean, I think there's a, a, quite a few things, you know, uh, when, when I was younger, I always saw myself as, you know, let's say going to be more than what I currently am. You know, I think I have kind of that uh, boy from a small town against the world attitude where I've always kind of envisioned myself as preparing for something bigger. Um, when I left to go to college in Houston, you know, I knew that that was kind of the initial step of me becoming an adult and choosing my professional career. And regardless if I was going to be uh, starting my own company, I knew I wanted to be a part of an operation that I ultimately respected and kind of fulfilled my own uh, passions and desires to to really kind of change the world and, and make the world a better place. So once I got into corporate America and realized like, okay, if I want to succeed in corporate America, I kind of have to play the game this way and this is what's going to take and this is the path. And I was really kind of set it, I already set myself up for success there. Uh, it was kind of a, a no brainer at that point that if I was going to try entrepreneurship, I needed to do it now. And I did yeah. that when I was about 25, 26 and wow. haven't looked back since. Wow. Good for you. That's really great. I mean, to have that mindset and do it at such a young age, that's, and that's the time to do it, which is excellent. So tell me about challenges that you faced along the way that has helped you. So many, I mean, I think, you know, challenges are part of the, part of the game. When, when you accept kind of ownership of a company or uh, a brand organization, whatever that is, you know, you, the every single problem becomes your problem. So I think I've gotten just used to that being kind of the, the task of the day. Um, but if you're talking about from a startup phase, it's always, you know, I think not knowing what you don't know, right? Like not knowing um, how to finance things, not knowing when to finance things. One of the things I tell people with my first company, well, I definitely should have gotten things financed a lot sooner. Uh, you know, for the first five years, I was unable, unable to pay myself, which most people cannot afford to do that. And, right. it, you know, it worked out in the long run. But during those five years, it was, it was pretty hard. You know, I was working multiple multiple businesses, trying to, you know, juggle cash flow and right. just kind of make everything work. And you learn a lot during that process. You learn what not to do. And, you you know, you learn what you can kind of get away with when when times get tough. So. Uh, to me, it's all part of the journey. And uh, uh, if I could change anything, it would just be kind of making these realizations a little bit sooner. So, you know, realizing in year two, I have something that I should invest in versus waiting till, you know, year three and a half or four before I actually pull the trigger on it. But, you know, it's part of the process. You don't know what you don't know when you get into it. Right. So having access to a line of credit, you're saying is important from the beginning? Yeah. Lines of credit and just more how you're going to finance and finance something when it, when it's time to scale. You know, I think when we started, uh, and I'll use Kettlebell Kings as an example, when we started Kettlebell Kings, we knew we had something, you know, we knew we had a, let's say a brand and something that people were gravitating towards, but we knew that before the real cash flow started coming in, that was going to be, let's say, life changing. So, you know, we're making, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month, but that's not really going to change our lives. We need to scale that to, you know, five million a year or 10 million a year, whatever that is. And when you've never done five million a year, you don't necessarily want to go out and get a million dollar loan. That sounds intimidating to you. 
and you hope that, you know, you just keep seeing more signals that make you feel comfortable with moving that direction. Well, now if I was consulting with a company and I saw a company moving that direction, I'd be able to identify a lot sooner when they should pull the trigger on that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't need to hesitate and kind of be stuck in uh, a place where I'm in fear of the possibilities of, of things not going my way. And I think you only really know that through experience. And so now I can quickly identify when I have a potential or an opportunity and move on it a lot and capitalize on it a lot faster. Tell me about Kettleball Kings. What, what, what was the business exactly? So that business was, um, and I mean, I say, I say it was, it still is. Uh, and, you know, technically it's still in the tail end of uh, my consulting agreement and my APA with them. But the um, the the basics of the company was to, there was no real community based around that particular product, and that's what I really focus on. So uh, even with my new consulting stuff and everything that I do, it's almost like a you know fans first is my it's kind of the the new theme or the new philosophy that you'll see me saying quite a bit. Where I'm trying to build a community and then I'm trying to source products for that community. So. I noticed really quickly after I graduated from college, starting to trying to get into my own health and wellness routine that the kettlebell was kind of an up and coming product. If just from a knowledge and a, a marketing perspective, the product's been around obviously for thousands of years, but Rogue and CrossFit and these types of companies were making it a lot more popular, but there was no real underground company that, spe- that specifically uh, generated content or even products in that space. And so what Kettlebell Kings was supposed to be and what it still is, is a company that can kind of be the ESPN of the kettlebell world, but then also provide whatever products or services that community is interested in. So it's a more of a niche, uh, lifestyle community. And then we also provide the actual equipment itself, but you know, you have digital products and, uh, competitions and certifications and different things like that. So it's really everything you can think of around a kind of a health and fitness company centered around a kettlebell. So when you use the word community, which is really a great word, right? For if, when you're in business. So you're talking about the community that would be around the product, the, the, the community you're building around the, the initial product that you launched, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I, and I look at it even maybe the product to me, it's easy if you have a product. So kettlebell, Kettlebell Kings, you know what the product is, you know the niche. Um, but to me, the community is why do these people want to get together and associate themselves with one another? Why do they want to wear the logo? Why do they want to, uh, you know, spend time on the on the website, absorb any of the content you're creating? So when I say like the ESPN of the kettlebell world, I really look at it kind of a content first and how do I generate content to create a community? So we realized quickly that you couldn't just pay for, you know, someone to see a powder coat kettlebell ad and then someone would buy it. There was a long process of getting someone comfortable enough to per- to make that purchase. And then at the very end of the content generation strategy, you finally make that sale or you make the sales pitch to them at the very end. So building the community came a lot sooner than the actual sales did. And that's one of the things that I kind of mentioned earlier when I was saying like, we realized we had success we were, you know, building a community of people getting leads, not even trying to pitch sales necessarily and trying to just generate engagement and traffic and um, create something that the industry or this niche had never really seen, which was a central location to absorb information around this particular product. So whether it was 
who won the, you know, some small um, kettlebell event in New York or who won it in Puerto Rico or some, you know, some new kettlebell juggler in uh, in Brazil. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like we're the central location where you absorb all the information around kettlebells and starting that really is what built kettlebell Kings to, you know, let's say the industry leader in that niche, because if you want to know what's going on in the kettlebell world, you can always go there first. It's the, the most credible source of information. Right. So two things as it relates to community that I want to know about, right? Number one is when you say you, you, when you say you built a community, right? How did you do that? specifically i think it's one of the good things especially about kind of uh being young and naive when you're doing when when we were doing that you know i'm I'm a lot more focused and have a like, more philosophy on it now but one of the good things when i started is i didn't really know much about kettlebells um and that journey of trying to discover what kettlebells are who is the most credible coach who is the most credible lifter like literally trying to establish an alliance of credible individuals and a, a almost a panel or a, a board of people that we would consider uh, their information or their content credible going through that journey is what helped build the community so we're literally trying to find every organization that throws kettlebell events around the world and then who are the top coaches in those organizations and then bring those coaches together and let's create a kettlebell together let's create collaborative content about how to do things together it's all about trying to bring everyone together so we can create the most content. And then usually inside of these networks, there are people who have businesses as well. And right. we want to align ourselves with those businesses. So, so they're not just, you know, uh, they're not just, we're not just using them to, to gain their credibility. We're actually complementing whatever services they're offering or whatever they're trying to do. So if it's a, you know, if it's a, if it's a trainer who also lifts, then we're getting him more clients because we're getting his content on a, larger uh platform than just his platform so it's on the kettlebell kings page and we can create uh workout videos and we you know we can create a series of youtube free workouts and it, it just kind of never stops once you identify what you want to be and for us that was pretty easy and because we didn't have any credibility on our own we had to go after that so i couldn't just say you know, you know this kettlebell is good because chad said it's good i had to go and find us myriad of different kind of resources to say, okay, this is why this is good because we have, we've tested it here. These lifters at these, this club in California currently use it. We have, you know, several clubs in New York. We're inside of, you know, 24 hour fitness and lifetime. Like all of these things are just part of continuing to build that community in my mind. Right. So in order to get in, in order to get in the door, let's take lifetime, right? So in order to get into door to introduce who you are, to become part of that community, what is that like? You're just picking up the phone and making a phone call, right? So, so like, what is your, did you have a process to, to break through to these people? Yeah. So like those deals are a lot, you know, a lot tougher than, than how I make it seem probably. Um, especially if you're talking about, you know, lifetime and 24, these bigger gym chains. Right. Uh, I would literally, you know, I wasn't responsible specifically for those types of deals. And, um, you know, I would always kind of give myself at least a year and a half, kind of lead time on any large B2B deal just because how long their their purchasing cycles are. But it, it starts with, to me, especially nowadays with bringing more, if you're just looking at it from a B2B perspective, 
I try to bring more than just the product. You know, I, I don't think any vendor has a product that's so unique, especially when someone's willing to spend a million dollars on it. You know, I could, I could, any gym chain could just as easily go make their own kettlebells in China. And if for a million dollars, they could get a very good rate. You know, they'll get just as good as rate as we do, maybe, if not better for our single purchase. But they don't get to bring a community and a, a brand alliance and an allegiance between two fitness entities. And th that's kind of how I look at it. So if if we're not always constantly bringing new engagement and new people and new uh, eyeballs to our company, then we're not nearly as valuable to another B2B client. So it's more than just the equipment. And I think that's what's always helped us. And that's always helped me is I always knew that from a owner to owner, from a, you know, entrepreneur to entrepreneur, if I could get that other CEO or the other um, chief marketing officer, whoever that is making those decisions to see the brand value of aligning themselves with my brand, that's way more valuable than just the, the purchase up front. And that's what I would go after every time. Well, awesome. So, so how do you take what you did with building this community and the process you've taken? How do you how do you replicate that for other industries? Let's take let's take wealth management for example, right? The industry I'm in, or any industry you want. So, how do you take what you learned and maybe how you improve today, and and replicate that to build a community around one's product? Well, I think you, you know, I think when you've been, you know, in the game, let's say like you have for a while, you you kind of start realizing who your customers are and you kind of identify who they are. And for me, it was always about reaching out and really trying to find out who that was. So like an exercise I did was I called every single business owner or I sent out emails and then had calls with every single business owner in the network of Kettlebell King. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of emails, anybody who owns a company, let's jump on a call and just talk. And through that exercise, I learned so much about who the audience was. And that's a specific, you know, test that you can use to, to let's say, calibrate messaging. But I learned that there are more than one way to help communities. You know, it's not just the services I offer today. It's, it's also the content that I'm creating and that's free value that I bring to people. So someone will buy something from me just because of a video they saw last year, or they will make a recommendation because of the content that I'm creating on YouTube or um, the videos that I created that they sent to their wife or whatever that is. And so I really try to create content around building the community and measure that as success separate from my resources. I mean, separate from my, my revenue. So I wouldn't even look at like your actual services as something I would look at, you know, like you're doing the podcast, I would say, well, what type of engagement, what type of topics are we getting and how do we grow that first? How do we say, we know the content we create is growing more engagement. And if it's not doing that to me, that's where you would start and try to fix that uh, as the initial thing with yeah. kettlebells. It's a lot it's a lot more narrowly focused because you yeah. you keep this kettlebell at the centerpiece. With you, you might have multiple centerpieces. You know, it may be accounting, it may be um, wealth management. Like you say, there's different kind of aspects of it. But once you find it and you're able to generate that content, get a platform for that content where it's being successful, everything becomes easy after that because we're just reading the people that are actually engaging with it. Right. So, so it's figuring out, like you said, trying a bunch of different things, and if something's not working out pivot, move into another area. And if all of a sudden that starts to to gel and you're getting positive feedback and you're saying just, then that's your messaging right now that's working. And, and that's when you just take that to another level. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's just, you're going to, you're going to keep testing it and, you, and it never stops. I think the, 
the thing that I have over most people is I don't look at it like a process that ever stops. So it's, you know, it's an A-B test forever. It's, you know, it's like when you go to practice, you go watch film, you go back to practice, watch film, you go back to practice, you watch film, you just continues to do that on a regular basis. Right. And that becomes very easy to me. And you see success pretty quickly. I mean, even if you're saying it takes me a whole year to really get my content dialed in, well, that's, you know, that's nothing in, a, in the lifespan of a business. And the fact that you've, you know, taken that year gives you uh, a year gap on everybody else that's trying to get into your, into your space and compete with you. So going through the process of genuinely wanting to create an online community, it, it humbles you, but it also gives you true value that other people can't necessarily take from you. When you say it humbles you, why do you say that? Uh, I mean, I, like I take myself for an example, you know, I I am probably more of a, uh, I'm probably more experienced in athletics and uh, lifting and, and uh, exercise than most people that ever have purchased from me. But that doesn't make me the expert in what people want in a kettlebell. You know, I'm not the final say so on what is the best product for an audience. Um, you know, I think that is a, a process that I will outsource and I will try to figure out how do I benefit the most people. So when it humbles me, I, you know, I might think something is cool, but if I, if I just me thinking it's cool, doesn't mean other people's going to buy it. Um, you know, right. I, another, a good example would be like print on demand. I remember when print on demand first came out when, you know, it didn't exist print companies like Printful and uh, Printify and these uh, kind of you purchase the you purchase the shirt and then it gets made or you purchase the apparel and then it gets made that, that I was around when that first started. Well, I hated the quality of print on demand. I thought it was terrible. I was like, this is, you know, I'm like, I, I go to my printer guy, I'm holding up one of the, one of my shirts from him and then I get a print on demand shirt and I'm like, these things suck. But when I send them out to people, no one cared. Like literally no one cared. And some, some owners would be like, well, I still care. So we're not bringing that crap in. And I'm like, well, if they don't care, well, who am I to tell them that, you know, their t-shirt should be two points higher than, you know, to meet my standards. Like it's not up to me. And I think that kind of stuff and just having that open-mindedness about trying to really figure out what moves the needle with them and respecting what moves the needle with them and not necessarily trying to create a world in which, I've envisioned, you know, premeditated world, you know, I'm trying to find, obviously, I mean, I, I, like the honest, most efficient world that I can find in my niche. In terms of culture within a company, right? So again, you own the company. So how do you keep a strong culture within the company? It, it comes, it comes probably easier for me because I played on so many sports teams. Um, you know, one of the biggest lessons I have probably in sports and branding in general, I'll talk about it in my book is my high school coach came in and we won state the first year he came in and the year before we were good, but he came in with new messaging, new, new branding, a new culture. Uh, you know, one thought one goal state champs was literally on every single thing that you could see around the entire facility around the school. Um, so like, creating a culture to me comes natural from sports, but I think in general, it's, you know, it, it's something that's consistent and it's something that you have to kind of, it, it's kind of like trial by fire as well. So, you know, with, with kettlebell Kings, you, you have an opportunity to say like, for example, like this is the culture we want, this is what we're going to create. And then things will come up in which you get to kind of test that. Uh, you know, I, I talk about in the book again, like a, a, one of the big stories was, 
uh, two years into the business, we finally got in a warehouse, employees, and we're really gearing up for uh, our first really huge Black Friday. We've, we've purchased more kettlebells than we've ever purchased before. Um, previous to this, we've had okay Black Fridays, but we know this year, you know, we can make several hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars Black Friday. It's going to change the trajectory of the company. Uh, we've had several meetings with employees about how we want to handle this. And obviously this is over a holiday break. So, you know, me, myself, and my, well, my, my partner and I are the only two people that can really pick up the load if the employees don't take it. Well, that weekend comes in, our employees decide they're not going to show up. And so it, it literally was four days of my partner and I just sending kettlebells until two in the morning, go home, wake up, come back, do the same thing over for four days. And that was our holiday. And it completely sucked, but it changed the perspective of the company forever. He and I never... We never questioned each other's commitment again after that. There was never a, a debate on the culture. Like it was like we know we do what we have to do to get it done. And those types of opportunities only present themselves. You don't necessarily get to choose when that happens. And a lot of times, I think sports has taught me that like the game is going to give you the opportunity to be a to you know to to be a legend, to be the to be the big name. You're going to get it in the game. That's the only chance you can get. And that's how I look at creating cultures for businesses is if you're trying hard enough, putting yourself in difficult situations, you're going to get a chance to kind of test and create your own culture. Uh, just keep putting yourself out there. Right. So within your company, employees, you're saying will see the, the, the work you put in, the way you carry yourself and, and that you're saying establishes culture within a company. Yeah, I think you, you know, I think you have to write it down, right? I think you have to tell people and have meetings and, you know, regularly discuss it, but it it doesn't sink in until you actually go through things. You know, I think you have to be willing to put people in situations where they win or lose and have a chance to kind of stress test themselves. That's when culture is really made in my mind. Like yeah. if everything's just going smooth, you you don't have a culture. You're just, people are just there collecting a check. There's no real culture. But when things get rough and rocky and tough and you have to make it through difficult situations and depend on one another and things like that, to me, that's when you really kind of foster some type of camaraderie that can really bring everyone together into agreeing on a culture. So, so Chad, I want to shift to personal financial planning, right? And, and money. So you, you're running a business, your clients, people you speak with, founders running a business. And and, and all of us have profits at the end of the day, right? And, and, and some of the decisions that we have to make, and I'm wondering how you always thought about this and even speaking to some of your clients. So, you know, keep it simple. You have a, a dollar of profit. Do you take that full dollar and put it back into the business, right? Or do you take some chips off the table and invest personally to grow so I look at like, here's your business and here's your personal net, nest egg, which can be retirement accounts, non-retirement accounts, real estate, maybe other businesses, private businesses, right? So these are investments that you make here, right? And both are going to grow over time. But the big question that I wonder your thought process on, of that dollar, do you recommend you reinvest the full amount back into a business? Because that normally is the highest return on investment. Or you take some chips off the table, and if so, what percent? How do you think about money, personal finance, et cetera? I mean, I think, you know, obviously when you're different ages, you can afford to take different risks. So, you know, I'll start there. This is not kind of a universal for every age. Um, 
and when you're younger and you're first starting, I think you take every every dollar and put it back in the business. I think it's hard not to, right? I think love that. I agree. If you're not if you're not putting all your if you're not willing to go all in, it's gonna be hard uh, to really get to that point. And I think going all in gives you a different level of commitment to things when you're, especially when you're first starting off and you're younger. But as you mature and as you kind of have experience, I think you should be allocating, you know, a percentage of that dollar to something else. Um, one of the things we did was, you know, four or five years in, I talked about us not not being able to pay ourselves for the first five years. Well, we started another company. So we started a kettlebell Kings was one company and we started another fitness company that could do everything else. So we were allocating resources from one company to kind of diversify our fitness portfolio and bring in more products. So it, we knew if we could sell kettlebells over here, then it, it wouldn't be too hard to sell dumbbells over there. And that's kind of the most basic way to look at it, but we could continue to expand off of what we had learned without a significant uh, learning curve because it was, you know, a uh, similar, let's say a similar process in order to sell those types of products. Um, but, you know, even now, I, I, you know, I was, I, and I think most entrepreneurs, they struggle with 401k and retirement. Like our retirement in our eyes is, you know, our next big, big idea. Like that's, that's the retirement, like while we need retirement, we're going to blow up. Like, so, I, you know, I, I think there is some self-awareness once you start getting older and, you know, even hiring someone like yourself to, kind of put those things into perspective, give right. you a competitive analysis of what other people are doing, where they've seen success, because, yeah. you know, you, you, I am admittedly the, the completely like, yeah, let, let's put it all in, you know, we're going to make some more money tomorrow, you know, let's put it all in. And I, my accountant would say, Hey man, you need to, you need to make sure you at least you're saving something for the IRS. And I'll say, okay, well take that out and then put everything else in, you know? So I, I think it is a, a balance. And as you get older and more experienced, you have more ability to bring in resources and, and people who have expertise. And that, that's what I try to do. Like, I don't consider myself like a personal financial advisor to anyone. I would never give someone that type of advice. I would say you need to go find someone that you can trust and have those honest conversations and make sure that you're taking that in consideration with your decisions. Yeah. You know, so like my book, Make Work Optional, which is off the, off the uh, corner of my shoulder here is, you know, the idea is for all of us, right, is to kind of get to the point where you have complete financial freedom, right? So you can still be, be an entrepreneur and do all the things you have to do, but you kind of set some chips over here where you set yourself up that if something didn't work out with your business or whatever it may be, that you're still set, right? Yeah. And that, and that that piece over here is offer stability to the family and security to the family and obviously yourself. The you know the, the the risks that any founder is exposed to. So like for example, like my business of the wealth management in general is 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 a time tested, mature business model, right? So like getting involved with kettlebells when you initially did, you know, there's 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 a lot of risk to that. You're purchasing the product from China, China, uh, China, and then bringing it here and hoping, you know, building a community around it. So th I think there's also different level of risk depending on your business in as well. So there's there's a lot to think about, but a lot of it does come down to, I think the um, the personality of the actual founder themselves, right? Like you said, you you'd go all in, let's do it. You know, you got a ton of confidence, which is really terrific because the reality is that any money you reinvest in a business, you're going to get the highest rates of return because yeah. of the tax deductibility of that number one. And that's tremendous, right? Because if you take that, if you take that dollar and you took the, and you took the full dollar and put it in your account, well, that dollar is really going to be probably 60 cents because of taxes. So it's not even a dollar. 
But if you take that full dollar and reinvest it in your business, well, you just saved yourself tons of taxes and you're going to get a return on that dollar. So, I mean, we're talking about returns on investment capital of like north of like 20%, right? Well, depending on your business and, and how you can grow money. So, there's, there's really, it's an interesting subject. And I, I want to really get in the minds of founders more and more and more to get their their feedback on that. And a lot of it, like you just said too, it's going to depend. If I'm talking to a 55-year-old founder, it's going to be different than talking to a 39-year-old founder. So, uh, it's it's an interesting subject. I, I'm I'm pretty passionate about it actually. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the areas I think it kind of is a is a niche right now that I work in actually with consulting is people who have businesses that are not necessarily digital businesses. And if you're like 55, 60, 65, 70, these types of age groups, you really you could have started your business. And if you've had a business for a while, you did start your business pre-social media and pre-digital age of anything, really. You could even, it could even be technically almost pre-internet. But I think the there is a whole community of people who are looking to retire and automate their processes that they've created, but they've made themselves an essential piece of their uh, manual business, if, if that makes sense. And one of the areas I help people with, uh, you know, I work with a construction company where I'm literally helping them digitize and automate every single one of their processes, create some type of community. You have, you know, thousands of clients that you've helped over a 30 year period, right. but you've never really turned that into a digital community and uh, you never really generated content for these people before. And I think there's a whole generation of businesses that are going to be looking to retire in the next, you know, five to 10 years that either they have to digitize and automate their business to be a modern business, or that business is not going to exist anymore without them. Right. So what you mean by that specifically, in other words, you know, the, the companies, like you just said, they have thousands of customers. Some of them are so old school. The idea of creating a video is like, so yeah, exactly. you know, something they, the last thing they're thinking about. Right. Yeah. But the, rea the reality is, is that, you know, going forward, as we think about the world, whether you like it or you don't like it, and believe me, it's not easy. I create video content all the time, and there's a lot involved with it. It takes time, things like that. But what you're saying is if you're not involved like that in a company, no matter what your company is, because your end customer, client, patient, they're going to search on the internet and YouTube. And, and, and if you don't have a presence versus your competitor that does, that's probably going to be a problem. Is that what we're saying? A thousand percent. And, and especially if you're trying to acquire new customers in the future. So, you know, you're right. the people that are being born now, the people that are in junior high, high school now, they don't understand pre-social media. So if you don't have a social presence, you are looked at as less credible, period. There's no there's no middle ground for that. There's no such thing as, well, I don't need to have one like that. That was technically 20 years ago, but it's definitely today. And there's a lot of people, especially in that generation where they are an essential piece of the business. They they have never really had a chance to utilize the modern tools that we have available to automate processes. And if you were an essential piece of your business and then you retire and you don't have this digital setup in place or some type of process in place, the business doesn't have the energy or the the new incoming revenue from anywhere to to succeed anymore. And I think I well not think I know because I'm I'm from a small town in Texas. There's tons of businesses all over Texas that are like that, especially from small towns who are regional, you know, geographically local businesses that never really had to build those types of huge networks of digital networks. And now you're you're looking at kind of having to compete with Amazon and Walmart and pretty much any other company that would right. be on, on the internet. Right. When it comes to digital, what would you, from your experience, what do you think is the most important 
digital process to implement for a business, the top two or three? I think it, it depends on the business for sure, but what, whatever you can automate, you know, I think a lot of times people are just manually doing things then slowing the process down. So, you know, I, I look at every business as it has to scale, it has to grow, you know, any business that's stagnant is dying to me. Um, so I'm always trying to scale a business and, and use as many digital tools to do that. Even if you're just talking about, you know, from an accounting perspective, like if, if you don't have like even a, a basic understanding of your cash flow and uh, if you're not using uh, whether it's QuickBooks or, you know, you can go as far as using NetSuite, whatever that is. Right. If you don't if you don't if you're not able to do that on a regular basis and have some type of snapshot assessment of where you are and where you need to go, then you can't improve. And so what I'm always trying to do is get something in place that we can have a general consensus of what data we're reading and then we can make real harsh decisions on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, whatever that is. And a lot of companies, especially if you're older company like that, they're not even doing that uh, at all. And, you know, they're, they may look at it on the tax returns at the end of the year, but I'm trying to look at that on the actions we took from the previous 30 days, the actions we took last week. Right. And those are the types of things that I try to get in place as fast as possible. That's good. It's good. Um, so to finish off as as, as quickly as we can, right? So, so fitness, it seems like fitness and health is a big part of your life. It's a big part of my life as well, right? Always like to learn from other people. Tell me for, tell me, let's say, let's start with um, supplements. What, what are the top supplements that you would recommend somebody take? Well, I mean, it's, it's funny you say that. And I, yeah, I did mention that I own a supplement company, but I'm, I'm not even huge on supplements myself. But if I had to recommend supplements, you know, I, I think they're the the key thing is to try to make sure you know what you're taking. You know, I think trying to source high quality products in today's modern food chain is just, you know, it, it's crazy to the, the things you have to dodge and kind of get around. So finding a company you trust, finding um, a product that, you know, is it, trying to be made clean, healthy, um, you know, organic is a good thing, but more just the least amount of processed product that you can have. Um, but things like just, you know, if you're working all the time, protein is going to be key for you, uh, especially for women. If you're, you know, if you're trying to start a new workout regimen, getting sore all the time, and that, that can deter you from not working out enough or uh, not being as efficient as you can. So different things like that, I would, you know, I'd recommend protein and then any types of kind of rest aids, you know, I, I like those as well. So like things that are calming to you, soothing, calming, whether that's teas, salves, um, Teas, what else? I'm sorry, teas, what else? Teas or like salves. So, you know, some of the things like I sell Life Grows Green, we sell like, uh, like hemp based salves that are, uh, you know, we have like a sports version that has like menthol in it. That's more like an icy hot. And then you also have, um, like, a uh, just a, a more like a CBD version that's going to give you more kind of soothe, soothing effects. And so it, to me, it's all about maintaining the recovery process and being able to get back to your workout as fast as possible. And that usually is kind of protein and then something to, uh, help you sleep better and sleep more comfortably. What's your view on cold plunges? Uh, I mean, I think it's a thing, you know, I think it, you can, you, you, you can do it. Do I think it's like, you know, going to change your life and re revolutionize your life in some way? You know, I think there is a lot of gimmick to it, but I, you know, I, I think it, I think it works for some people and some of those things for me, you know, I'm really big on like the placebo effect, right? Like if you are 
if you're putting yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable and challenging yourself to overcome something on a regular basis, right. you're going you're gonna to feel better and you're going to yeah. actually be stronger and tougher. So it, it, right. it doesn't matter what that is. Like you could, you could be plunging yourself into, you know, a bucket of crickets that cause you're, you know, you're, you're afraid, afraid of crickets, whatever fear you've overcome. Now you're, yeah. you know, you're a better person. You feel stronger. So I think it's a lot of that with co-plunging, but there, you know, there, there's new studies coming about coming out on it every single day. So you know, I, I wouldn't discredit it for sure. Um, I tell you, I, I, I tell you, I do it, and um, it's yeah. it's it's a game changer. Yeah, no, I was gonna say, I know I know people who swear by it. Yeah, and then I know people who are like, "Come on, man, you did cold plunges before." Like we did cold plunges. I know, I know. You know this was this was in two two thousand, right? So and now all of a sudden it's like everyone has to get a cold plunge. I know, like, I know. guys, like this is not new, you know. So yeah. I'm probably a little biased when it comes to it, but no, I I do think I do think things like anything like that to me, it, it works. And that's what I'm saying. Like I'm, I'm the type of person where I don't care what it is that you're doing. If you're challenging yourself to do something more difficult and you get a positive benefit, whether that's mental, physical, spiritual, whatever that is, like, yeah. who am I to stop you from doing it? Like, right. yes, please keep doing that. Make yourself the best person you can be. And that's how I look at cold plunges or, um, you know, people who want to do hot yoga, whatever, whatever it is. It's like it, all of these things are just uh, tools that I think we can make ourselves into better people. Chad, this is awesome. It was great talking to you. You have an abundance of knowledge. Congratulations on all your success. And thank you for your perspectives today and insights. I'm sure my audience is going to find a, find a lot of value to it. So thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It was a very nice meeting. All right. Likewise.